And this morning we are in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, and we're going to stand together and we're going to read uh, verses 16 through 40. If you're visiting with us this morning, we welcome you. We're thankful that you're here. And um, it's our habit to let the Word of God speak. So we're just next in this passage, Acts chapter 16, verse 16 through 40. Let's read this together. Luke is saying, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But as her owners saw their hope, that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowds joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembled with fear as he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all those who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his family, and he brought them up into the house and set food before them and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Lord, help us today. 
to be humble before you, Lord, to be teachable, to allow your Holy Spirit to have his way in our hearts, Lord, as we, as we marinate in this text for the next uh, hour or so, Lord. We, we ask that you would accomplish your will. What we know not, Lord, you would teach us. Lord, what we are not, you would make us. And what we have not, Lord, you would give us. And allow me, Lord, to be faithful. Let you, and, and Lord, what you desire to convey through your word this morning, uh, Lord, would be what comes out of my mouth, and that your Holy Spirit would take it and have his way with us, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, a couple of weeks ago, my lawnmower, which is just like three years old, stopped working. I'm sure you've experienced that. And I am not Mr. Handyman. I'm kind of like Mr. Unhandyman, and I have to ask people lots of questions. But we have this wonderful thing called YouTube. And I did the normal things. I checked the spark plug. It was fine. I checked to make sure there was gas in there. Okay, that was fine. Uh, to see if there's any gunk in the engine, that was fine. I checked a few other things. And uh, as I was watching this YouTube video, kind of a guy with a Russian accent kind of telling you how to do stuff on this thing, I figured out that the problem was the carburetor. So I took the carburetor off and I was trying to fix it and put it back on and it still wouldn't start. But I kind of nailed it down. That was the only place there could be a problem. So I, I ordered one and it came and uh, finally, um, yesterday, I was able to go outside in the morning and say, all right, I'm going to tackle this. I'm going to put this carburetor on. It didn't take long to take the old one off and put the new one on. And of course, I was feeling really excited, you know, pleased with myself. I've accomplished this thing. Look, I'm a mechanic now, you know. And I thought to myself, you know what? Now that my lawnmower is fixed, what do I need to do? I need to cut the grass. And uh, so I started to cut the grass. And it was great. I was just feeling good about myself. And about halfway through, um, my lawnmower clipped one of my sprinkler heads, snapping it off way down at the bottom of the, uh, the whole system. And so, I'm, you know, I was just wanting to get things done quickly and get it over with and move on to the next thing. And so now this, this project turned into something bigger, right? And so, you know, a short time at Home Depot and finally getting back, I was able to fix everything and, and you know, put all together and put it back in place. And as I was in the process of doing that, I was looking down at this, this, this uh, spout, this PVC spout, and uh, I had you know, turned the water on just to flush it out so you can get all the dirt out before you seal it up. And as the water flushed out, I was just noticing something. But when the water came out, it just kind of dissipated. It just doesn't stay there. It, it, it found a way and a place to go. And, and I was thinking about my sermon today. I know it's kind of weird. This is what I do. I'm in the middle of things like that, and I think about these things. And I was thinking how this water just finds its way into places is very much what we've seen here in the book of Acts. And what I mean by that is this, is that at the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, the dam of the gospel is unleashed. The water of the gospel starts to now go into various places in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then into the end of the earth and now into this region of Eastern Europe. And what, what is true and what we're finding is that the gospel is relentless. There may be obstacles in the way, but just like water, it's finding its way around, it's permeating hearts, it's getting into the lives of people. And that's just a wonderful reality, friends. So when we come here to, to, to our present passage, one of the things that we need to see and remind ourselves of is the theme that we began last week. 
And that was this, the ongoing ministry of Christ in the hearts of men. Christ continues to do his work in the hearts of men. And that last time we looked, uh, we took time to discover Timothy's willing heart, if you remember, Paul's discerning heart, and then Lydia's open heart. But this week, we want to continue in that theme, but there is one significant difference. It's the presence of opposition. This week, we want to see that Paul and Silas and the rest of the ministry team head out of the place to prayer, presumably on the next Sabbath, and they will run into gospel opposition in a number of forms. So what we'll see in verses 16 through 40 is the ongoing ministry of Christ in the hearts of men in the face of opposition. This is kind of a a new deal now from the first part of chapter 16. Now for some, this will be surprising news. They think to themselves, and understandably this is what is often taught and preached, won't following Christ take away all my problems? And the answer is what? No. (laughs) If I become a Christian, doesn't that mean that God promises to bless me and keep me healthy and protect me from harm? Well, it is true, friends, that becoming a child of God brings with it many blessings. Forgiveness of sin, citizenship in his kingdom, a home in heaven, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, the word of God. But becoming a Christian won't remove the presence of sin from having its effect on your life. In fact, Jesus is clear to spell out the trouble we may face as his followers when he says to his disciples, this is Matthew 10, verses 16 through 18, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as servants and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Yes, to all those health, wealth, and prosperity people, read this text. See, Jesus understood that trouble came with being a follower of Christ. For others, though, this is not news. We understand that Jesus was opposed and ended up dying on the cross, and yet he is the sovereign son of God. We understand that his disciples, also known as the apostles, must endure opposition as they take the gospel from region to region, from city to city. We've already seen that. We've already encountered this opposition in Jerusalem with the apostles being beaten and put into prison. Then, of course, when Stephen was stoned, he was faithfully just unpacking the Old Testament to the Jews who should know the Old Testament and saying, look, this is all about Christ. This is all about Christ. And yet, what do they do? They stone him to death. See, the apostle Paul is speaking in his last letter to Timothy, his son of the faith. This is what he says, 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 12. Listen. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from uh, from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? Will be persecuted. So this is no surprise to, to followers of Christ. The gospel, this gospel opposition will be the norm in this world. Now, that doesn't go well with, my, my say, our comfortable American lifestyle, does it? 
which many of us think is also a Christian lifestyle. But true Christian lifestyle means that there's going to be suffering. You're, you're going to be you know, under the oppression of others. People are not going to treat you well simply because you identify with Christ. And friends, this will be the norm in places like China and North Korea and Russia and Ukraine and Europe and Asia, Bolivia, California, Texas, Idaho. You can't get away from it. Why? Because this is what Christians will have to endure. Friends, wherever the gospel is, it will, like water, find its path to bring life to sinners living in a context of opposition. Now, as we look at our passage today, we're going to discover three scenes which encounter three key characters, a slave girl, a jailer, and some magistrates. And in all three scenes, we'll see that gospel advance in the face of gospel opposition. Now, friends, this is, this is just always the case. Opposition is daunting, is it not? I mean, you, you, we experience in California a law that is put into, you know, is, is put on the books that opposes the things that we stand for, and it feels horrible. And yet, you wake up the next day, you're still a Christian, you're still a child of God, you still have your church, you still have, we have so much. But it's there, and it's getting worse and worse and worse, right? But this is the place that God has called us to. So with this breakdown of gospel oppression as a reality, we want to see this gospel advance. Let's begin first then by looking at an enslaved heart liberated, an enslaved heart liberated with this backdrop of gospel confusion. Again, as they were going to the place of prayer, this missionary team headed up by the Apostle Paul are, are probably on, the, on that following Sabbath from the week before going to that place of prayer for the purpose of celebrating and, and, and interacting with the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, and pointing through the Word of God how Christ is the one who fulfills the Scriptures. Now, it seemed like just any other typical Sabbath day in a Roman colony where most of the people are pagans and there's a few Jews that are walking around. And, of course, the, 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 Jew, the, the Romans there, they tolerated this. They were fine with this. They, they were actually very open and tolerant of other religions uh, uh, being practiced in their, in, their, in their midst. In other words, there really is nothing to see here. This is just a normal day. There's no reason for anyone to stop and pay attention to Paul and his companions at all. They're just a few foreigners going about their business like so many others in this cosmopolitan city. But what they find as they go through this day and what the scene uh, is, is marking out is exploitation, confusion, and then liberation. So let's first look at the exploitation. And what we read in verse 16 is a horrible state of affairs by any standard. Look at it, if you would. As we were going to the place of prayer, we, met, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. What Luke wants us to see here is a girl who is exploited. First of all, she's exploited by a demon, right? This is a spirit of divination, literally a spirit of python. According to myth, python was a snake that guarded the temple of Apollo and was eventually killed by Apollo. Later, the word of python came to mean a demon-possessed person 
through whom Python spoke. So she was a, a channeler. She was one who, who spoke for Apollo. But this is exploitation by a demon. The demon had possessed her. But she was also exploited by man, right? She had owners. I mean, just think about that. She had owners. She's a slave. And she is also a source of income by her fortune-telling. So she was a python fortune-teller who revealed the future to those who are willing to pay her owners. Kent Hughes says, rightfully, she was a clairvoyant owned by spiritual pimps who sold her metaphysical powers. This is a horrible scenario, friends, that any man or woman would treat another person like this to their advantage, to their end. But not only that, that the demon would also be doing that too. That's the exploitation. But now notice the confusion. Verse 17, she followed Paul and cried, uh, and us crying out, these men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So she's crying this message repeatedly as they are going and doing ministry. Now, isn't what she's saying the truth? Isn't this a demonstration of God working through the lips of one who is demon-possessed to speak the truth? I mean, can't God do that? The answer is yes. But if so, it would be hard to imagine why Paul is annoyed. <laughs> Friends, Satan is willing to declare 100 things that are true in order to dupe you with the 101st thing that is not. He knows that he cannot always get his people to believe a lie. So he begins with something that is true in order to get a foothold and then seek to confuse and distort and misrepresent in order to cause havoc in the church. Friends, it isn't the content of what she's saying that is wrong, at least not to our ears, but what she is saying is a distortion and a misrepresentation of the truth because in the pagan mindset, in their context, when you hear the expression, the most high God, they think of one of the pantheon of gods and the highest God in that pantheon, that Jesus is just another one of them. So it was a description that was used both in Judaism and in paganism. So this was an attempt now to confuse. Let me kind of explain this. It was a distraction, but it was also um, a means of misrepresentation. A number of years ago, when I was in, uh, a lot of years ago, when I was in university, um, I was doing kind of uh, work in a church in Anderson, South Carolina. If you have no idea where Anderson, South Carolina is, it's, it's right where Clemson University is, right? So you didn't know that? News to you, Clemson University is down there. A mill town is what it was. Um, it's really built up now. But back then, it was still very, very depressed, and I helped a church there, a little small little church there. And um, I remember there, in that context, in the culture down there, when someone is preaching and they say something that you like, I mean, you yell out with a hearty, amen, right? And you know, sometimes hearing an amen is kind of, a, kind of a cool thing. It's encouraging. I've had the privilege of going to some African-American churches, and it's more like a conversation going on, if you know what I'm saying, right? I mean, you know, they're saying, shake that bush and things like that. You know, they're, they're trying, to, trying to, you know, they're getting involved with that. Well, in the South, the, the, the same thing is happening. The problem was on this particular Sunday, this gentleman who I knew, he was, he was really kind of, you know, eager with the hearty amens. The problem was he was saying amen when he shouldn't have. 
I mean, when we're, I was saying things that are serious and it needed to be quiet and people need to think about what was being said, it was, amen, you know. And ultimately, it was a distraction to what was going on as far as gospel presentation is concerned. It was all good. It was right. He was agreeing. But it was ultimately a distraction. But not only that, what we have here is truth being misrepresented. Let me kind of give you an illustration of how that happens in our context. If I'm speaking to a oneness Pentecostal who says, Jesus is Lord, I cannot agree with them. And the reason I cannot agree with them is because they have a completely different view of the Godhead. Their view of the Trinity isn't one God, you know, three persons in one God. It's, it's modalism. Here's God the Father who turned into God the Son, who now is God the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in the same Godhead that you and I do. So when they say Jesus is Lord, they mean something different than I mean. If I'm speaking to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, they may both use some of the same language. They talk about Jesus as the Son of God. They talk about the gospel. They talk about salvation. But they mean something completely different than what the Scriptures teach. So there's a sense of this going on here. What was being said appears to be true, but it's a distraction. Not only that, it's a misrepresentation because it's really kind of fuzzying the line, so to speak, to bring the clarity as to who Jesus is. This is one of the tactics, friends, that Satan loves to use. He loves to distort the gospel, to bring gospel confusion. So in the, in the, with this backdrop of gospel confusion, you have this exploitation, this, con- this confusion. And, and finally here, you have this wonderful liberation. Look at verse 18. This distraction, confusion, and manipulation was so troublesome that Paul becomes greatly annoyed, doesn't he? Now, friends, that should be a great comfort for us. The apostle Paul, the one who's called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, he gets annoyed. Anyone here ever get annoyed? All right. I know it comforts me. Now, friends, why was he annoyed? Well, it's probably not just one thing. It's probably a combination of things. The slave girl's exploitation by her owners. The slave girl's enslavement to demonic powers. The distraction of his ongoing word ministry. The distortion and confusion of the gospel, all of those probably all working together. And he is annoyed in his spirit. He's saying, I have to stop this. I have to stop this. I have to speak to this. And so Paul says to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. This wasn't kind of like, well, you, you want to come out? No, this is a, I command you. And what does the spirit do? Immediately he comes out. What we have here actually is a play on words. In verse 18, we're told that the Spirit left her, or in the ESV it says came out. And at the beginning of verse 19, we're told that their prophet left them or was gone. It's the same word. The Spirit came out, their prophet left them. And with this command in Jesus' name, the Spirit immediately departs. Luke does not explain whether the girl was converted by faith to Jesus. It may be that she was only liberated from her bondage to a demon, but I do think that John Stott has it right when he says the fact that her deliverance took place between the conversions of Lydia and the jailer leads readers to infer that she too became a member 
of the Philippian church. We don't know. One day we'll, we'll get there. But from a literary perspective, it would make sense because Luke seems to be giving us these examples of conversion experiences. And he's not giving us all the details of those things. This is narrative. But these two examples certainly give us the extremities of social standing in the community, right? Neither woman, that's Lydia, who was a businesswoman who was wealthy, neither her nor this slave girl can enter heaven because of their social standing. Your poverty doesn't give you rights before God. Your wealth doesn't give you uh, any rights before God. Both must come to Jesus Christ in the same way, forsaking all hope of human achievement and merit and trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ to save them from their sin and bondage. A person is a Christian only if he or she can say, I am what I am only by the grace of God. So in the context of gospel confusion, this girl who had been enslaved by the spirit of Python is now liberated. She's been depithoned, just such a word. We have a vivid picture here of our condition before Christ, don't we? In bondage to sin, without hope of any deliverance, but Christ comes and sets us free. And this message of bondage and freedom is needed today because there are so many people enslaved to what this world has to offer. Drugs and sex and pornography and abuse and slavery and human trafficking and selfishness and greed. And you can go on and on. They're all enslavement. Sometimes people say, oh, no, these are wonderful things. What you call wonderful is actually your bondage. And Jesus comes to rescue you through his gospel. No matter the bondage, the gospel liberates, and it can do so immediately if one comes to Jesus by faith. An enslaved heart liberated in the context of gospel confusion. Secondly, a desperate heart rejoicing in the context of gospel persecution. So having considered this enslaved heart, the text moves us to this next scene where we'll encounter this desperate heart rejoicing in the context of gospel persecution. The heart of an unlikely character, the Philippian jailer. And this scene will move through four stages, persecution, proclamation, desperation, and regeneration. I just Those are just words to help us kind of see the flow of things. First of all, I want you to notice the persecution. And we've seen it already in the book of Acts, right? The responses of the people to the message of the good news isn't always favorable. And we would need to be careful that we are not so naive to think that as we go out and we share the gospel in our context, that everyone's going to go, oh, wow, that's really good news. Yeah, I want it. That'll be great. In fact, there's going to be a lot of people say, I don't want that, and you need to stop it. I can't stand what you call good news. In fact, that to me is an offense. It is evil. It certainly was not good news for the slave girl's owners, was it? Notice, first of all, the owners, they bring a prejudiced accusation against them. They seize them. This was a a semi-official kind of arrest. They drag them into the marketplace before the rulers because there in the marketplace is the place where they exercise judgment. It's where they would have the equivalent of what we would consider to be the Bema seat. 
and they accuse them. Now, there's two false accusations men. First of all, these men are Jews and are disturbing the city. Now, it's interesting so far in Luke's uh, record here in the book of Acts, the only people who have been stirring up cities and causing trouble are Jews who are chasing after Paul and Barnabas, beating them and dragging them out of the city, from city to city to city, right? What we have here, though, is Paul and Silas simply going to the place of prayer, interacting with the Jews, declaring the truths of the gospel. But you notice what we have here is very anti-Semitic, isn't it? Notice what it says here. These men are Jews. Jews causing trouble. We are Romans, but these, they're Jews. Paul and his companions have not done anything to disturb the city, but the truth in these matters doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the truth is when you kind of get to this place. These owners are upset, and they're going to push their agenda. Why? Because they've lost their source of income. And so the accusation has been posted on Twitter and on Facebook, and people are showing up in the marketplace to see who these terrible Jews are. And the second thing here is they advocate customs that are not lawful for us to accept or practice. Now, certainly, if the gospel of Christ taught that one should not participate in pagan rituals of the Roman culture, then these men are right. But I think what we have here is really what we would call handbags. You may not know that expression. It just means a lot of, a lot of kind of, you know, it's, it's a bunch of old women using their handbags and fighting each other. That's the picture of it, right? In other words, this is just an excuse to bring these guys here and, and make this accusation. Why? Because they lost this income because this, this girl was delivered from her demon. I mean, just think about And notice what happens then with the crowd. We're told that they attack them. This is not referring to a physical attack. This is more responding in kind and agreeing in such a way. There's a mob saying, yes, yes, these people are responsible. Yes, they're guilty. Yes. I mean, but it would be intimidating, right? And then the magistrates, number three here, they, they, they order their police to beat them with rods. Now, once they're beaten with rods, they're put in the prison, and then they are, uh, they are, the, the jailer takes them, and he takes them in the inner prison. It's a place of darkness, and he puts them in these stocks to, to keep them secure. This is not a good day for Paul and Silas. This is not where you want to find yourself, just having started the day by going to the place of prayer. Well, that, friends, is the persecution. And certainly it escalates fast, right? You have individuals, owners, the crowd, and then the magistrates. Now we want to consider proclamation. What happens next? First of all, there is a proclamation of praise. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. They're doing what? They're praying. And they're singing praises to God in the context of the suffering and persecution This is what they're doing. Well, what were they praying? Were they praying for God to deliver them? Were they praying that that they would be worthy to endure? Were they praying in such a way as to rejoice in their sovereign God uh, whose gospel was taking root in the most unusual ways? I wonder what they were singing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. 
That would be the first one probably that came to their mind. How about when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I mean, there's a contentment going on here with this praying and singing. But when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my life is often cold. He must hold me fast. So you just imagine the kind of songs in that moment would, would take on new meaning. This is what often happens, friends. Our circumstances happen and songs take on new meaning and verses or lines from those songs take shape and, and, and minister to us in that time of darkness. How would you pray and what would you sing if you were just thrown into jail for believing and teaching that Christ can set you free? But notice that their, their singing and their prayers were not going unnoticed. They were able to, in this time of darkness, proclaim the glories of the gospel to other prisoners that they would not have had this opportunity to do if they had not been there. So we have, first of all, a proclamation of praise. Notice, secondly, a proclamation of power. And by that, what happens next is a demonstration of God's power. It's not just an earthquake. There's something more going on here. Clearly, this is God speaking through his mighty power. And notice three things that are mentioned. It is a mighty earthquake, so strong that not just the walls and roof are shaken, but the very foundation of the building is shaken. All the doors are open. Everyone's bonds are unfastened. Now, a simple earthquake doesn't do all those things, does it? It might shake the, the walls and the foundation. It might even open a door or two, but not all of them. And it won't unfasten bonds. That's kind of like disconnected from the actual earthquake when you think about it. This is a mighty, powerful demonstration of, of God. He is proclaiming something through this event. And we should not be surprised that God breaks in to act supernaturally to ensure the advance of the gospel. He's already demonstrated that in the book of Acts. In Acts 5, Peter and the apostles were in jail, and they were led out of jail by, a spirit, by an angel. In, in Acts chapter 9, Saul is on the road to Damascus, and God encounters him there, right? And then in Acts chapter 12, Peter's led out of prison by an angel again while the church is praying, and we find him knocking on the door and Rhoda saying, ah! And then... Last week, Paul received this incredible vision that directed him to go to Macedonia, and here he is. And this week, he does it again, does it again breaking in supernaturally with the slave girl and the earthquake. But friends, God doesn't always intervene, does he? We can't say that God will always deliver you in these miraculous ways. He does when it's his purposes, but he doesn't always intervene because it's not part of his plan. Stephen was stoned to death. He was faithful. James will be beheaded. He was faithful. Paul will, will, will be beaten and dragged out of the city and left for dead. We saw that a few weeks ago. He'll be shipwrecked. Ultimately, he'll be executed. But in his time and his wishes, God intervenes for the advancement of the gospel, demonstrating that it is clearly a work of God. Friends, this is 
the proclamation. God has spoken. Persecution, proclamation. Next, desperation. What we read next is no surprise to anyone who reads history. For a jailer to have lost prisoners that are under his care, who are his responsibility, is typically going to end up with his execution. And probably torture involved in that too. So it's, it's no surprise that rather than face the hu humiliation and the torture for his failure, he draws his sword ready to kill himself. And at that moment, he hears a voice out of the darkness, doesn't know who it is yet, and it says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. What do you mean you're all here? And what's helpful here is that the jailer is at a place of desperation. He, all that he sees is, is the crisis of the moment, right? It's pitch black, and all he sees is in this circumstance is the open doors, and in his mind, he fills in the gaps of the implications of what he's experienced. In his mind, all the prisoners have left, right? And it's now his desperate crisis moment. He fills in the gaps. And what he believes to be true moves him to the place of desperation. But what he believes to be true and what is actually true are miles apart. And friends, so many people are living in a distorted reality of what is true. They believe what's going on in their head. They fill in the gaps. They don't see there's a bigger picture of God at work in their time of desperation. And it's only the voice of truth, the voice of reality that will shake him to question the desperation that is bouncing around his heart. Things are not what they seem. And I wonder, friends, are you in a similar place of desperation? God in his providence has brought about circumstances that seem to you to be so overwhelming. A relationship has turned sour. A business venture is unraveling. Your health is degenerating. A pandemic is sweeping through your community and you feel doomed and desperate in your circumstances because in your mind and your heart, you can only see one, uh, one path, one out outcome, failure, disaster, shame, and now you are in the depths of desperation. And then a line from a Disney movie comes to mind. Desperate times call for desperate measures. And when we're desperate in circumstances, it is time, friends, to take desperate measures to establish or recalibrate our reliance on the dependence of God, to put things in perspective to see the big picture and to find the, the, our, the, our rest and hope in him. Now, turn, if you would, to, to Psalm 77. In times of my desperation and confusion, this is a psalm that I will turn to often. The writer begins by crying out to God, but it just doesn't seem like he's listening. He can't speak. He can't sleep. And he moans in desperation. Ever been there? God, where are you? God, what are you doing? What is going on? I'm trying to reach out to you. I'm going through this crisis and I'm, I'm opening the word of God and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about you, but I don't, I don't sense you. I don't, I don't even know that you're there. And then he begins by giving six almost blasphemous questions. Will the Lord spurn forever? Forever? 
and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? As if that could ever happen. Are his promises at an end for all time? Does he actually not keep his promises? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? And the rest of the psalm is about the writer fighting his way out of the fog of desperation and despondency by remembering the mighty works of God. He says in verses 11 and 12, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your works and meditate on your mighty deeds. It's not just, oh, read your Bible. No, it's, it's understand the God who's behind the Bible. He is at work. He is powerful. He is accomplishing his purposes. Even through times of crisis and desperation, he's still God. I'm also thankful for the book of Job. We're not going to read the whole book. But I would draw your attention to Job chapter 13, verse 15, which for me is just a landing place. It's probably one of the key books, or key verses in the book. Job is suffering through his calamity, and he, he can't, he's trying to fight, keeping to fight hold of, of, of God and his own integrity. And he says in, 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 in chapter 13, verse 15, though he, that's God, slay me, though he, he puts me in this calamity, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. I just love that, those two things, right? I mean, it's wonderful, it's helpful. Why? Because on the one hand, he's hoping in God. God, though you slay me, I'm going to hope in you. But there's still some things I want to talk to you about, right? I mean, we understand that. But he's, he's resting in him. Our desperation, friends, is an opportunity for God's demonstration. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, speaks about God's deliverance. And in the, in, in the ESV, the word rescue is what is used to, to, to translate that word deliverance. I want you to hear 2 Timothy chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. You just bypass it. Just you breeze by it if you were reading in this section. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. He's saying, you know what? I was rescued from physical harm. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me out from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What a way to finish that book. I know he gives some greetings after that. This is what he says. Paul is saying, God may deliver me or rescue me and allow me to live another day, or he may deliver me and rescue me to be with him in heaven. And I'm okay with either one. And if you're okay with either one, then you're going to face what God brings you today. Because if today is the day he rescues you from this earth and takes you into heaven, so be it. You see, that's the heart of Paul. So however you look at it, God is in control, he's at work, and we are in his watchful hands. That doesn't mean that it's easy, but it is a backdrop that helps us. So we move from persecution, proclamation, to desperation, 
desperation, uh, and then regeneration. And we're going to see really three things here. The jailer, having set aside his sword, calls for lights. What we have here is the evidence that he's responding to. And when he sees that it is true that no one has left, he's overcome with fear, and he falls at the feet of Paul and Silas, not as an act of worship, but out of respect and thankfulness. He can't shake the reality of what he has experienced. These men have been beaten and thrown into jail. I'm sure that he was told a little bit of their offenses as he brought them in and why they need to be taken in and secured inside. That they had been disturbing the city and advancing customs not lawful for Romans to accept or practice. Yet, these men spoke out and they saved him from killing himself. And they don't seem panicked at all about what has just happened. In fact, they are sure They're confident, and they're in control. And so he asks a question, and here is the famous question. What must I do to be saved? Now, friends, at this point, he is none the wiser about the claims of the gospel. But as one commentator says, the earthquake has presented him with irrefutable evidence that God is at work with Paul's group He wants to know whatever more Paul can offer. Is there a way to escape God's reaction to the injustice in which the jailer has played a role? In the face of this evidence, the jailer does not want to be found on the opposing side. Now, the gospel in conversion, friends, is often a process Yet you're saved in a moment. There's a process that leads up to the place of actually humbling yourself and embracing him. So listen to the answer that is given. Paul gives the jailer the answer to his question, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. But Paul also knows that for the jailer to believe in the Lord Jesus, he must first know who Jesus is and what he has done. So Paul takes the jailer and his household to the word of the Lord. And there's another time I would love to have been a fly on the wall to hear what he is saying in the context of the jailer's home. And what we find then in verse 33 is the fruit of repentance. Now, Paul doesn't use the word repentance. He doesn't say, and this person now believe that's not there, but this is what they're told. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not giving us all the details here, but we are understanding that this jailer is converted, and we know that by the fruit of repentance that we have here. First of all, there's compassion. He washed their wounds. Secondly, there's obedience. He was baptized at once. Then there's hospitality. Right? We saw that with Lydia too, right? He welcomes them into his home and fed them. Just get this. You're a prisoner in jail. Come to my house. Let me feed you. There's something happening here. And fourth, there's joy. He rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. These are all the fruit of repentance. Friends, in the context of persecution and injustice, God works his sovereign plan to move a desperate and despairing man to the place of joy, all because Christ because of Christ and his gospel. The the gospel continues to advance in the face of gospel opposition. Third, 
guilty hearts are exposed. So far, we've seen an enslaved girl liberated in the context of gospel confusion, a desperate man rejoicing in the context of gospel persecution, but now the the guilty hearts are going to be exposed for the purpose of gospel vindication. So let's set the scene. All the prisoners are back in their cells, and it's now morning, right? There was this thing about midnight, and now it's morning. And a lot has happened between those two times. And the magistrates send a message to Paul and Silas to say, you can now be free to go. You are released. And the jailer comes and says, i got good news for you. You can leave today. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been beaten with rods the night before and thrown into the heart of a prison and put in stocks, and I was told, you can go, I think I might respond by going and as fast as I could, right? But that's me, and likely all of us in this room, but not so Paul. I wonder what Silas is doing and saying at this moment. He's probably looking at Paul and pointing to the door and saying, Paul, they said we can go. Let's get out of here. We've got more ministry to do. And Paul is saying, "Mm mm-mm. See, he has his gospel glasses on, and he sees the need to stand and fight for the gospel and for justice and for vindication. And friends, the Apostle Paul here is modeling for us that there are times when we must take a stand against the injustice of gospel persecution. Sometimes we just can't walk away silently and thankful that we're free. We're thankful for our freedom, but there's something more important going on here. That the health of the church and the integrity of the gospel are at stake. So what does Paul do? Essentially, he says, we, must be, we may be released, but you are not. And notice what happens here. Paul says, you are not released. You have acted with injustice toward two Roman citizens, and you must own it, and you must come and take us out publicly. You arrested us publicly, you beat us publicly, you threw us into prison publicly. Now you can't just release us and walk away as if nothing happened. No, you need to be people who are exposed for what you have done. And we might be asking, why did Paul not simply quietly retreat? Why did he insist upon his legal rights and a call for attention to the matter in the way that he did. Paul, first of all, was concerned that if he didn't take a stand against the injustice here, that a precedent for how Roman leaders would treat Christians would be set. So there's something about the church and how they were dealt with that was really, I mean, this this could be repeated, right? We'll beat Christians, put them in prison, and nothing's going to happen. Paul also knew, though, that true Christians were actually the very best citizens. If you are a true follower of Christ, you should be the best citizen of the United States of America. You should be. Or if you're in Canada or wherever you might be, you should be seeking to live faithfully under the umbrella of the authorities that are there unless those authorities are asking you to do certain things that are ungodly. See, God's people are not rabble-rousers who want to sow disorder. They're people who want to live their lives for the glory of God. They're people who want to take care of other people and meet needs and help and be kind and generous. 
Paul is modeling for us that Christians and Christian leaders are at times called to be political when it comes to defending the faith and protecting the freedoms of those who are part of Christ's church. Now it's interesting, isn't it? That Paul sees God as sovereign and powerful to intervene even with an earthquake, but now as the apostle to the Gentiles, he sees his own responsibility to take a stand for the gospel integrity. Now, friends, this is just another example of how divine sovereignty and human responsibility are inseparable. Yeah, God does what he does, but I have a responsibility to do what he's calling me to do. So the magistrates, we have Paul, and third, we have the gospel vindicated. Verse 38, the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and they apologized and they walked with them out of the city. So what, what Paul desired to happen is what happened. But hear this, the magistrates realized now that they functioned irresponsibly because they, they put these men in jail. They, they, they rushed to judgment. They were swayed by the false accusations and the escalation of the voices of the crowd. And now their guilty hearts are exposed. And in exposing their guilty hearts, the gospel is vindicated. See what's going on here? In other words, the gospel isn't causing trouble for you. The gospel is here to bring satisfaction to you. And having been set free and encouraged to leave the city, they return to what appears to now be the hub of Christianity in Philippi, the home of Lydia. So they went to the prison, out of the prison, visited Lydia, we're told, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and, and departed. I, I wonder what that encounter was. Hey, it's good to see you, Paul and Silas. How was your day? <laughs> well, don't you want to know? And they encouraged them with what God was doing. Let's just bring this to a close. I have two things to really kind of maybe see land the plane on here as we conclude. First of all, the gospel is for sinners. In Acts 16, Luke is seeking to under, underline and highlight for his readers that the gospel is for all sinners, no matter your cultural standing, no matter your gender or where you're from or who you work for, no matter where you were raised, if you were raised in comfort, if you were raised as a slave in the home of another, the gospel is for all sinners. And we've encountered Timothy and Lydia and the slave girl and the, the jailer, and each has been impacted by the power of the gospel in different ways. And so no matter who you are or where you're from, the color of your skin, your standing in society, if you're white collar, blue collar, no collar, man, woman, adult, child, rich, poor, middle class, Christ has come to liberate you from your bondage. He's come to set you free. He's come to bring you joy, in particular if you are in a place of desperation, by welcoming you into his family, by exercising his hospitality to you, by giving you a citizenship in his kingdom, by granting you forgiveness and being in a right standing with him. This is all happening because of Christ and the gospel. But he does so by exposing our hearts. First, we must see that we're sinners, and then, and only then, can we see the beauty of what Christ has done for us on the cross. That he died to save sinners that he died to pay for our sins, that he died to set us free and to bring us joy. So what must I do to be saved? Repent and believe that Jesus Christ 
has accomplished what was necessary on the cross so that you can be reconciled to God. The gospel is for sinners. May we, may we always rejoice at that. Secondly, Christ is our magistrate. Unlike the unjust magistrates in Philippi, Jesus will judge mankind with integrity. He will expose men's sinful hearts. He will judge them with fairness. And you can never accuse Christ of injustice. And so we want to close today by reading Psalm 96. Albert began by reading Psalm 97. I want to finish by reading Psalm 96. And I want you to notice kind of like the, the parallels that we have from our text with Psalm 96. But I want you to see in particular how it is that God deals as the magistrate. Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord has made the heavens the spirit. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's in his faithfulness. He is the righteous, equitable, faithful, trustworthy judge, magistrate. When you stand before him and you're a child of God, he will look at you and say, you are guilty. But your guilt is covered by the blood of my son. If you don't know him, He's looking down and saying, you are condemned. You were already condemned, but now you are ultimately condemned. Friends, we, we want to be on this side here. We want to be at the Bema seat. We want to be at that place where the judgment is one of reward for those who are his children, not at the great white throne where the ungodly will stand before him and not be able to stand at all because they have nothing to stand on. You can trust him in life and even in your death to be fair, to be just, and to be righteous. Lord, help us today. We are thankful that you take us out of our bondage and liberate us through your gospel. Lord, we are thankful that you take us in our desperation. And Lord, through all sorts of circumstances and dwelling on you and 
settling in on who you are, Lord, you bring joy. And we thank you, Lord, that although the world may be against us, you will ultimately expose their hearts. And they will have to acknowledge their sinful and unjust behavior before you, the great and mighty judge of all. You are worthy to be praised, Lord. Thank you for all that you have done for us. We give you praise today in your name. Amen.